Hi there, this is Big Will here at the Crucial Crucial Coffee Cabin, Crucial Cafe, chilling, lounging with a dog. I like the Crucial. Yeah, it's a Crucial. Yeah, it's Crucial that you got. This is um, what do they call that? Self treatment. What self, kind of treatment? Self, yeah, self, uh, self, self embetterment. Right here, I got a dog. I'm petting the dog. The dog. The dog. Your dog wags its wags its tail when you pet it. It's yeah, adorable. it's good. It's, uh, it's yeah. She's got the script, man. I'm stressed out, man. Yeah, just try. Yeah, I'm just trying to de-stress. Uh, I listened to a little bit of the old vomiting corpses earlier, classic old school death metal band. You may or may not be familiar with. I'm not to be. Shout honest. to Dark Descent Records. Dark Descent Records out there. When I want to get nice and cozy, little coffee, little little old Maxwell House, because I'm easy to please. I don't need any of these fancy new things. Maxwell House or a little bit of the old Folgers. Uh, snuggle up with a dog or a cat, my blanket, and my Dark Descent Records. I got to applaud them. They had, they just uh, if you missed it they had a sale, you could have got some some vinyl and some, I got my Morpheus Descend seven inch, got my Hellwitch seven inch, nice. got my Hobbs Angel, Angel of, of Death, Death. Oh, may that man rest in peace. Um, vinyl, I got I got a few nice things. Dis- Discord from Norway, beautiful uh, avant garde band. To us, they're avant garde on Long Island. In Norway, they're like just a you know they're a metal they're a normal band, band. Yeah. yeah. Like it's whatever your perception is, yeah. So that was that was beautiful. Um, now I moseyed on over and I saw Tom because it's the Heavy Hole podcast. I introduced you. I'll take it. You've been demoted to like the guest co-host now. I don't even care. I just show up. <laughs> I have fun. I cut the damn thing. Yeah. I don't want to be on the show anymore because I hate listening to myself now. As long as you don't cut your hair. Yeah, you grew your hair long. You started lifting weights. You had that surgery where your voice is now more soap opera-esque. It's honestly the same. <laughs> I thought it would be way different. It's, it's, I noticed like a, a slight difference, but it's not. Yeah, it wasn't like they flipped the switch. Yeah, I was hoping for something more charismatic, <laughs> uh, handsomer. Uh, I've been told I have a radio voice. Not to, not to be braggadocious. You got a good voice. 25 years of smoking weed and singing for death metal bands. That's the secret, my mm. good man. Yeah, you can do it too. Don't try this at home. It's just a, a comedy segment. Um, but, Tom, regardless, it's good to see you. Uh, we're back here. Justin, in absentia, we, we tip our hat. We pour out our drink for you. He's, uh, he's last week. Somebody said they saw him down at the beach. I mean, if they did or didn't. He was probably at the beach. I I had my nephew the other day for the day. I took him down to the beach, and I we played a little game. I said, look out for Uncle Justin. You know, see if you could find We, we were going up and down the beach. Just watch out for his line, really. We found a flip-flop. But, um, yeah, I don't know where he But shout out to Justin. Justin's out there. Shout out to Dave yeah. Gladding, uh, Rick Habib, all of our correspondents. We got a big heavy hole family. Yeah, now it's, it's good. beautiful. We're going we're gonna to hear from another heavy hole correspondent, former correspondent on the show later on, I believe. They, they dropped us a line. Um, no fishing pun intended. Tom, what, what else is going on, though, man? Seriously, how, how are things? Are any any metal in your life? Any nice movies? Maybe you've read a book, drank a nice cappuccino. I have been trying to listen to more things uh, because I haven't been listening to music. So I did, let's see, I listened to, what did I listen to today? I listened to the new Reeking Aura. It's good. We chatted about that. I didn't tell Tom to do that, guys. Yep. That's Tom. You're making me look a little braggadocious here. Come on. Well, I just did it. And uh, let's see. I listened to the latest Municipal Waste, which okay. I think is uh, okay. I think it's a big improvement. I wasn't really as sold on the last one that came out. 
Hmm. Um, I'm a big fan of waste, but I think this was a this was a bump up. The electrified brain, I think it was called. <laughs> sick. It's very sick. I like that. I like that album title. <laughs> that album title tickles me. I have been, oh, no. Boy. I actually have been. Let me let me go through what I have been listening to recently because yeah, drop the Spotify playback list, Tom. Let uh, know. Sororicide. I've been oh, listening to the them. entity. Yeah, that is a mysterious and classic album. It is. That's um, heavy stuff. That's I listened creepy. to the latest Psychroptic album today in its entirety. I cannot say I've heard that yet. How it's, is that? It's got some real strong riffs in it, but it's got this thing like there's this new wave of Psychroptic, the last few albums where they've been bringing more of this epic stuff in. And while they do it really well, it's not my taste, mm. but I got to say they do it really, really well. Um, I can recommend it to people who are into more of a like, modern sounding open slightly more technical facing death metal band um so not exactly my taste but overall very good that's big of you i gotta give it man uh, i checked out a band on willow tip that was pretty cool um another one that wasn't my taste exactly but the craftsmanship behind this was fantastic a band called parius not um, familiar not familiar with that buddy Man, uh, if you're into the technical stuff, uh, the technical prog, that's fantastic. And then... I like art. Dude, it's all, it's all art. And uh, last one to mention, I mean, I have been listening to way more shit, but Infestor. Infestor, yeah. wow. To that the it... depths and degradation. We talked about that on the yes, show a long time ago. Yes, yes. Yeah. Creepy bands. Creepy old school bands. Uh, yeah. Sweet reissue. Infestor and Sararicide pair well together. I think so, yeah. Um, they Very... tell different stories, but they both kind of crawl under your skin in similar ways. Yeah, creepy, mysterious, yeah. Uh, diabolical albums. And, and to be completely honest, I'm psyched to tell you all this because I hadn't really listened to any music. In the last month, I've been so busy with other things, and mm. the last week, I've been able to dive into some new stuff and old things and revisit, and here I am now. The death metal never leaves your heart, Tom. That's, that's how I know you're, you're true, you know? I'm trying, Will. Wow. I, I, I like that, man. A little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of something old, a little bit of something new, all over the globe with that. Just like tonight's guest. Tonight's guest, Adrian Camoens. You may know him from his work in Dreams of Consciousness podcast, dreamsofconsciousness.com for more info on that. Uh, he's going to tell us a story that travels all over planet Earth, um, tells us how metal culture is and is perceived in different parts of the world. Uh, and he's going to talk about his adventures interviewing lots of uh, death metal and extreme metal artists throughout his life. He's uh, a man who, all kidding aside, has um, in part inspired a little bit of this podcast uh, in the spirit of uh, covering underground metal journalism straight from the heart. Adrian Camones. Let's, let's ring him up. intro check 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 just give me a quick mic check real quick oh you're, you're recording testing, yourself testing. you're recording yourself which is great tom is gonna love that um this is big will from heavy hole podcast joined by my guest tonight 
Adrian Camoens of dreamsofconsciousness.com and Dreams of Consciousness podcast. How are you, Adrian? I'm good, Will. Thanks for having me on. A hundred percent, man. And thank you for your support in the past. Uh, even before I was doing Heavy Hole, you always supported my bands and bandmates and friends of mine um, with your platform. And uh, we're like I just said to you behind the scenes, we're going to turn the tables on you and you're going to be the one getting interviewed tonight. Uh, so relax and get comfortable. And I'm going to start off the way I always do. Um, are you from a, a musical family, musicians in your family, or from a background where anyone exposed you to hard rock and heavy metal uh, as a kid? So I'll, I'll start with the last part of that question. Uh, I was not exposed to hard rock or heavy metal growing up. I have an older brother and sister who were into whatever music was popular when they were growing up, uh, but I can't say that that music rubbed off on me in any way. Uh, my father was very much a music fan. Uh, he was a big classical fan, and later on in his life he became a big country music fan. But I can't say that that rubbed off on me in any way either. In middle school, I started uh, uh, doing a concert band as, as a class. You know, we had a choice between doing art or doing music. And so I, I chose music and I played saxophone for three years. Uh, and I got decent enough that I was first chair in uh, as an alto sax player. Um, but I can't say that I had any real love of music. You know, I was a I was a nerd and an honor student and, you know, I approached playing saxophone the way I approached anything else, which was, you know, just practice and do it uh, uh, conscientiously and, you know, tried my, tried my best to get better at it. But I can't say that I had any real love or interest in music um, until, and maybe this is, this is where we're leading to, do you want me to talk about how I got into this kind of music and how I got into heavy metal? Uh, that would be great, and if you could preface that with just sharing with the listeners, however general or specific you want to get, where you actually grew up, what part of the world. Okay, so this this gets complicated, and uh, the more I, <laughs> the more depth I try to explain uh, my background, uh, the less the less likely it sounds to the point that people really think that I'm making stuff up. And I can't blame them for that because it, it really doesn't make much sense to me either. But uh, in in a very uh, general way, my family is from Southeast Asia. Um, my father's family is from Malaysia and my mother's actually Indian. Um, but because of the job that my dad had when I was growing up, I actually grew up in the Philippines. Um, and so it's it's an odd thing where... You know, my mom was from one place, my dad was from another place, and I grew up in a third place. Um, yeah, so I hope that made sense as as general and, you know, uh, All right. well, it's, as, as, as I made it sound. Not as crazy as, um, as, as, you, as you might think. I mean, I could see that. Um, and growing up where you grew up in the Philippines there, did you... Like, was your situation something, like, not necessarily unusual? Did you feel maybe a little bit, like, of, as an outsider or something like that? Well, you know, because I, I went to an international school, I was surrounded by people who were in very much the same situation as me. And so, you know, if I described my my peer group in high school, it, w it was, you know, a Norwegian guy, a Finnish guy, a Swedish guy... Uh, a bunch of Americans, you know, and all of us were 
you know, foreigners living in this country, uh, living in the Philippines. Um, some had been living there almost as long as me uh, or almost their entire lives. And it's a strange thing to be a foreigner in your own home. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, I, I, I wouldn't, I, I've, not that I've experienced that, but I'm getting the impression here. You're, you're painting a picture for me. And does this lead into maybe where you where you, you discover heavy metal subculture and that sort of thing? Uh, not, not really. Only in the sense that um, because I had friends who were from other countries and would head back home for the holidays, uh, you know, the school holidays, so Christmas and summer. Uh, you know, they had access to music that we couldn't get in Southeast Asia, and so throughout the year, uh, you know, once I got into the the really underground stuff that you couldn't get in music shops in the Philippines. What I would do is I would save up all my money, you know, I would save up my allowance basically, and uh, you know, convert it to U.S. dollars. And when my buddy John went back to Texas, I would give him a list, and you know, whatever, whatever recent death metal releases or whatever had uh, had come out in in that period, a list and some money, and just told him, you know, get as many of these as you can. Um, and so in that sense. Uh, there was uh, there was a connection between my situation and and heavy metal music, but I um, not directly. No, in terms of like the culture and the way the culture of our school, which was kind of preppy and uh, a little bit classist. Um, I guess I was always an outsider, and so in that sense, uh, you know, as somebody who wasn't tremendously popular and got picked on a lot, uh, heavy metal was an outlet for me that way. Okay, that that's something I can definitely relate to, and maybe like a common thread with a lot of with a lot of people in heavy metal. Um, so now being in the Philippines, but being in this like international school, and your family isn't necessarily of Filipino descent, what was it like navigating metal? Because like, I, I mean. Were you able to have access to maybe like I don't know what's what sort of heavy metal scene there would have been in the Philippines in your area at that time, but like like did you even have access to like actual Filipino metal? Were there shows or record stores or anything of that nature going on, or was this all kind of like this clandestine exotic thing heavy metal? There's very much a heavy metal scene and a heavy metal culture, but because I was somewhat disconnected from the local culture as a whole. Uh, I didn't really get a chance to explore it until years later when, you know, I would go back to the Philippines and met up with some friends uh, from high school who had become a part of that scene, who had become a part of that death metal scene. Um, and so I knew I knew it existed because I would see people wearing shirts, you know, I would see people wearing metal shirts. And, you know, it was always like, man, you know, where are they hearing this stuff? Because, like, I'm having a hell of a time... Um, you know, myself, like trying to find any of these death metal bands. Uh, and, you know, it was it was the same as any network. There were a lot of people who were doing what I was doing, which was getting friends and relatives who were coming from overseas to uh, to buy music for them. Uh, there were people who were tape trading, which was, I, you know, when we talk about uh, the spread of, of underground music throughout the 80s, you know, we can't overestimate um, how important tape trading was 
for getting uh, this music to to all the corners of the world. Um, uh, it, specific to your question, uh, yes, there was a, a there was a, a scene, so to speak, and there were a lot of metal fans. But I myself didn't didn't really engage with them and their scene until much much later. And actually, until um, really until Dreams of Consciousness became. Uh, a blog that was exploring specifically exploring music in Southeast Asia. Okay. And maybe what's the line from where we're at now in the story to you starting dreams of consciousness. Was there um, a project before that, that kind of led into it or did you just one day say, I want to start covering heavy metal? <laughs> uh, well, it, you know, so I was, I was kind of a scene kid Um uh, you know, I went to college in New York and, you know, uh, every weekend I would be at CB's or at Coney Island High. You know, sometimes I would trek out from Brooklyn to uh, Castle Heights in Queens. Uh, you know, I was going to shows basically yeah. every week. Um, in terms of covering it, uh, you know, it, it, I always had this compulsion. You know, maybe I'm a little bit autistic. Maybe I'm, uh, you know, manic or, or whatever. But, you know, I would just have to tell people you know, about all these bands that I was seeing, you know, seeing Catharsis and Jesuit and, you know, uh, you know, seeing Obituary, seeing Deicide. And, you know, I just I wanted to write about it. I want to tell people about it. And, you know, if you were a friend of mine between 97 and like 2002, you probably got like a, a two or three page email about like whatever bands that I saw at, at CB's or Coney Island High that week. You know what I mean? Um, it never dawned on me that starting a zine uh, or starting a website was, you know, I, I didn't even know what a blog was until about like 2002 or 2003. The earliest blogs I was reading were actually political blogs. And it never dawned on me that it was something that someone like me could do. You know what I mean? Um, blogs seemed like you had to be an extremely uh, prolific and uh, intelligent writer. Um, and it, it, it didn't seem like it, somebody like me who just likes, you know, uh, making weird jokes and Simpsons references and things like that could start yeah. a blog to talk about death metal. Um, and, you know, so 2003, I end up back in Malaysia and, uh, which is where my family is from originally, but which is a country that I never grew up in and where I don't speak the language and where I didn't know anybody. Um, and so trying to make sense of my life and what, what my life was going to become, uh, extremely dark time in my life. And the thing that was most, uh, most depressing to me at the time was I didn't know how I was, how I was going to, uh, keep up with music. You know what I mean? I ended up, uh, uh, back in the town where my dad was from, cause that was the only place that, uh, that I could go. That was the only place where, um, that was the only option I had to live. Um, uh, and you know, no internet checking my email at an internet cafe every, every couple days. Um, and you know, I, I kind of got this idea of like, well, first of all, I need a job. Right. Um, and at the time as somebody whose background was in graphic design, uh, I thought if I could teach myself um, Flash, 
you know, so this is, you know, <laughs> this is dating myself, but uh, <laughs> there, there was a point in time where uh, if you wanted to build a website, people expected some kind of flash animation. Um, but if I could teach myself flash, uh, I could get work that way. And if I started a zine, I could get record companies to send me music. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a time honored tradition from zines, zine editors. Let, well, let before we get too far ahead with with you starting, let's pause at you starting this and the the light bulb going on in your head about this because something that that I want to ask you quickly. You mentioned you you go to college now in New York City. Which is, you know, that's got to be a big switch from being in the Philippines, but feeling a little bit separated from the main, you know, the, the, the main metal scene over there. And now you're in New York City talking about CBGBs, Castle Heights and Queens, which is a place I fondly remember going to shows at. Um, and you kind of have everything right there at your fingertips. Obituary, deicide, like you said. Like, what was that like? Was your first actual metal show in New York? I mean, unless you want to count... Uh like cover bands and things like that um that that I, I would have seen uh in my own high school um i would say the first real and you know i, I also had a band in high school and we uh we played like a talent show or something like that um but as far as like a real metal show yeah uh, I, I would say that my first gig was at cbgb's um it would have been crown of thorns 25 to life I believe Blood for Blood play that show as wow. well. I'm not sure, but I think I think um, All Out War played that show as well. <laughs> that is a tough first show, man. Jeez, you lucky you lucky you walked out of that one alive. That's a tough first and, show. And, and, and keep in mind what what I looked like in 1997. We're talking about <laughs> a kid dressed all in black with long black hair to his shoulders, going to CBS every week and seeing all these hardcore shows. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, <laughs> and in the nineties, in the nineties, in the nineties, having long hair and being metal at a hardcore show was a different vibe, for sure, than nowadays. Wow! But man. you know what? I I got there at right at the exact same moment because think about the bands that I mentioned: Catharsis, uh, All Out War. This was when hardcore kids started really getting into metal and learning Slayer riffs, and there was a weird kind of cool factor to like um oh yeah you know i you know i love slayer or whatever like the um you know it, even if the average hardcore kid was not that open-minded and hated hated metal and made fun of me for having long hair or whatever um there was like an emerging kind of cool factor to metallic hardcore or i guess what ended up being called metalcore yeah the the i, I always call it the first wave uh, victory records class where yeah. you know, all those bands yeah definitely man um bloodlet one of my favorite bands from that class the seraphim falls a great album by bloodlet but uh not and you remember you remember who uh bloodlet opened for when when they played new york who was that entombed really back in the day uh 98 i believe uh, oh bloodlet, man hate breed and entombed that's crazy man okay so things <laughs> were a little bit more mixed up back then than i'm giving them credit for then um all right so so yeah i just wanted to pick your brain about that a little bit and then that must have been so you go from going to cbgb's every weekend going to see all these bands and castle heights which is a classic legendary thing in itself 
And then you go back to Malaysia to an area where you don't really even have access to internet regularly, man. That must have been a little depressing. It was. It was extremely depressing. And I can, uh, you know, I can reveal now, like, the the reason why uh, that original webzine was called Dreams of Consciousness. Um, part of it is is the weird way that I write, which was, you know, back then more so than now, but I, I still kind of do this. Um, which was a bad impression of Hunter S. Thompson and Jack Kerouac and just this kind of like stream of consciousness. You know, like I said, like, you know, Simpsons references, movie references. Uh, people can can tell from the way I'm speaking right now that uh, I have a pretty disordered mind and like to go off on tangents. And that's the way I write, um, you know, one long sentence where you're, you're just kind of dragged along for the ride. <laughs> but, you know, it, you know, it, not knowing if I was ever going to see my friends again, not knowing if I was ever going to be able to see gigs again, because, you know, the part of the world where I live in, you know, Bloodlet's not going to come play Malaysia. Uh, you know, even without the uh, the government situation and the censorship and things like that, you know, bands like Entombed, uh, Deicide, whatnot, you know, they just, they really didn't come to this part of the world back then. Uh, and even, even uh, in the modern era, pre-COVID, uh, we would, get some shows sometimes but you know it's pretty sporadic uh, and so it really felt like i lost like everything that was important to me uh and then i was thrust into this new life that i um i somehow had to had to carve a new life for myself and the reason why it was called dreams of consciousness was i you know for that first year i felt like i was in a coma i felt like somebody who was um who was in a coma and dreaming of waking up like I was, I was trying to wake myself up and wake my and return to reality mm. uh, and that's why it was called dreams of consciousness back then wow that's uh you, you paint a vivid picture there um and you just just from what you said before too uh just for the record you're doing great i've had way more tangent prone guests in the past i'm not going to name any names you're doing good uh and and you did mention censorship and and Malaysia. Would you would you mind just maybe giving us just briefly like a little context of what that meant? You know, when you were living there in terms of being a heavy metal fan. Well, okay, so the official line, as far as the government is concerned, is that black metal, quote unquote, black metal is banned in Malaysia because it's anti-Islam, Malaysia being a Muslim country. Mm -hmm. Now, what does that mean in practical terms? Do the police know what black metal is? Can the police tell the difference between hardcore punk, black metal, thrash metal, or any other kind of, you know, uh, underground rock music? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They cannot. <laughs> I, I kind of see where this is going. So you could have like a Sum 41 CD or a Linkin Park CD, and if the cop doesn't doesn't like the looks of you, it could still go the wrong way. Well, you know, they they really didn't... I mean, there were some cases where they would raid uh, record stores and take whatever they deemed, quote-unquote, black metal. I think um, that may have been more of an excuse to steal CDs. <laughs> <laughs> on, on behalf of our our extremely corrupt police force um, allegedly whoa that's crazy damn and uh, the, the bootleg culture is deep 
Yeah, um, we, we we love pirating uh, here in Southeast Asia, and for for reasons that I think you know because of the censorship um, and the limitations that we have in terms of distribution and things like that uh, make a lot of sense, and you know are in a lot of ways the only practical way to get music and movies and things like that. But in terms of the censorship of metal, you know, uh, it I don't really know anybody who was like stopped for. Um, like had their had their car searched for heavy metal CDs, you know what I mean? Um, but I do know lots of people who would have a show, um, a gig scheduled, and the cops would come by and be like, you know, what is this? What's going on here? And the kids would be like, oh, we're just having a rock concert. And the cops would look into it and come back later and say, no, this is black metal. Uh, if you guys go on, uh, go through this, we're going to, shut down the show and arrest everyone here. Um, and this was happening all the way until uh, our last election. So I, I guess that would have been about 2000, um, 2017 or 18, 2018. Um, and I actually know uh, the place that I was seeing gigs here uh, for the last decade or so got raided by the cops. Um, and this is this is where our underground subculture and the um, uh, the uh, I would say like the authorities' view of what we do uh, collided head on, um, because there's a big protest movement uh, against our our former government um, called Bursa, uh, which means clean, and they had planned a big rally. Uh, in in Kuala Lumpur, uh, the capital of Malaysia, in 2018, and through some strange coincidence, uh, the guys who who book gigs here in uh, in KL, uh, space is called Rumapi, which means the firehouse. Um, they had a show the night before this big uh, protest gathering, and to be cute, they called the gig. Uh, Dance Tonight Revolution Tomorrow, or Party Tonight Revolution Tomorrow, which, of course, you know, almost everyone listening to this podcast will know is a reference to the Orchid album. Mm. Now, how many Malaysian police officers do you think are familiar with a classic Screamo album? Ah, uh, man, not just the singer of the Red Chord. No, no one else. No other cop would know that. <laughs> Exactly. And so the cops really thought, apparently, I don't know, um, but the claim was that uh, they really thought that that these quote-unquote anarchists, meaning uh, the punk kids at at the show, were planning some kind of revolutionary uh, uh, activity for the next day. Yeah. And so they raided the show, uh, you know, with their machine guns and everything um waited till the very last band okay so let let me so i wasn't i wasn't there that night this is the one um the one time where my my shitty work life actually (laughs) paid off for me because i was in the office uh till about 7 p.m on a friday night um didn't get home till eight decided you know i'm gonna skip this gig i'm gonna you know i'm tired and I'll just catch up with everybody. You know, there's a gig every gig every weekend. I don't have to go to all of them, right? 
um, the next morning I'm getting messages asking what happened at Rumapi, you know, what happened at, at our little DIY punk space. And I was like, uh, I don't know, I wasn't there. What, what did happen at, at Rumapi? And I found out about the police raid. I found out uh, after the fact, basically what happened was, um, you know, some, some guys showed up in quote unquote metal shirts. Um, so like Iron Maiden and uh, I don't know, I, I guess it would be like Metallica or whatever. Um, but still with their cop stashes. <laughs> oh, so and, like you know, straight up narcs. It basically. Yeah. Um, yeah. And went to the record store that was at the back of the venue. Um, and the record store also sells a lot of books. Um, and so they, you know, they look through these books, they look through these pamphlets about, um, anarchism and DIY and punk philosophy and things like that. Um, probably something about animal rights there as well. Um, and then left. And my friends who run the record store just kind of looked at each other and were like, well, <laughs> that was weird, right? Yeah. I mean, these, these guys that nobody's, nobody's ever seen before. And our scene is pretty small and pretty close-knit. You know, you see the same people at gigs every week, every month. Um, and even if, if you don't know them personally, you would know them uh, just by looking at them. And so obviously these guys were not part of the scene and, you know, as, as, as somebody who's 43, uh, it stings when I say this, but too old to be listening to this music or too, too old to, to be going to a, a, a hardcore gig on a Friday night. You know what I mean? <laughs> as, as somebody who's 40 years old, I know exactly what you mean. It hurts me too. <laughs> um, and so, you know, Everyone, everyone kind of knew something was off with these guys, but didn't say anything and, and didn't think too much about it. Um, and then when the very last, when the headlining band was playing, the cops uh, performed their raid, showed up with their machine guns, told everybody to sit down, turn off the music, uh, loaded everyone into the paddy wagon and took them to jail. Um, so the thing that's alarming about this uh several things that are alarming about this one you have to understand that in our in our diy scene we don't advertise in newspapers we don't advertise in the radio it's all word of mouth and it's all online through social media which means for the cops to even know that this gig was happening they had to have been monitoring our scene for some time Right. There, I, I've heard about something similar going on in the United States where they were raiding punk. I know in Boston, and that was a thing a while ago, a few years ago, we were hearing about cops uh, raiding DIY spaces and, you know, popping up in kids' DMs and asking them where the show is and things like that. Yeah. Uh, so, two, um, were these cops actually... Did they actually believe that 100 punk kids were going to stage a revolution <laughs> against the government with their, like, you know, tragedy patches and, you know, uh, safety pins and whatever? You know, I, I, I don't even think Malaysian cops are that, are that dumb. Um, and keep in mind what I said about the... Um, when the event took place. The event took place the night before a very prominent, very public uh, protest rally 
against the then government. Um, so it's my belief that this was an attempt, a cost-effective attempt by the cops to intimidate the youth culture and to scare people from going to the rally. Because word, word about the raid spread pretty quickly. Um, as it turned out, it did not work. The, the rally had uh, historic numbers, including the former prime minister, um, who showed up to su support the protesters. Uh, and so, uh, you know, and the government at the time was eventually ousted in, in the election that followed. Um, as for the people who were arrested during that raid, uh, because it happened over a three-day weekend, they were held in jail for three days. Mm -hmm. um, and Malaysia has something, has had something very much like the Patriot Act since the 60s, which is that you can be arrested and held without charge uh, just on the say-so of, um, without probable cause. I don't know what the the exact uh, legal term is but you can be you can be arrested and held uh, for as long as they want to hold you um, if yeah um. okay wow that's that's uh, that's pretty scary that's 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 putting it in realistic terms there because you're talking about people who are just attending a show at a DIY punk space or performing there um and then they were arrested for they were held for at least three days because my next question was going to be do you i don't know if you know if any of those people had lasting um prosecution you know were there charges filed that stuck were these people actually convicted of some sort of charge in, in some way well they were held during the weekend of the protest rally and released on the monday uh so the last day of the three-day weekend. Um, and, you know, that just fuels my suspicion that this was a way of of harassing and intimidating the youth culture and preventing people from going to the demonstration. Yeah. Um, uh, all, everyone was, was drug-tested uh, when they were arrested. Mm. Um, and so from what I understand, a few people tested positive for weed and i think one person may have tested positive for amphetamines um i don't know what happened to those kids but almost everybody i know who was arrested was was released without incident to to your knowledge what would uh testing positive for marijuana what what, what kind of consequences would that bring in in malaysia do you think uh so malaysia has extremely strict drug laws um and this is one of those countries where drug dealers are actually executed. Um, uh, I think, I, as far as I know, that uh, because I know a few people who have been arrested for weed, um, held in jail uh, for a period of time, but not, um, not for years, not for months. I think they may have been held for a couple of weeks. Uh, I think it depends on a uh, how many criminal convictions you've had in the past, mm. and b whether or not you can afford a good lawyer who can uh, uh, who can get you off the hook and say that it, it was a one-time offense or whatever. Okay. 
All right. There's, there's also a lot of like class elements to it. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, you know, somebody who's upper middle class with a lot of family connections can probably get off the hook uh, pretty easily. Yeah, it, so- it sounds similar to how things work in the states uh, in that respect. Um, so, all right, uh, very real conversation. I appreciate um, the dialogue we're having right now. That's a side of things we don't normally get into on Heavy Hole, but something that I'm very interested in is the idea of censorship and even persecution of um, uh, rock subculture, we'll just say, you know, not even extreme metal, but just any kind of rock music, really. So uh, getting back into your story, because I know you're currently, you know, back there in in Malaysia, if I got that right, but at some point you come back to the States and pursue dreams of consciousness um, as, as a platform where you're actually interviewing artists at shows and interviewing people at shows, right? Well, what happened was 2008, I moved back to the States and went back to school. Uh, and so I was part of the scene again. Um, and 2011, my, my visa expired. And uh, so, which meant that I would have to move back to Malaysia. And sometime in that period, I'd started writing again, uh, mostly just as an outlet and mostly just as a way to get my like dumb one-liners out into the world. Um, and... Uh, somebody somebody asked me why I wasn't like writing about music more, and I thought about it. and I was like, yeah, why why aren't I writing about music more? Uh, remember remember the uh, the friends who had to endure like the three page long emails about what was going on at CBGBs that weekend or mm-hmm, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this may have been a, a way to get me to stop doing that. <laughs> <laughs> like, hey, so anyways, somebody wants to um, read this. <laughs> <laughs> exactly um but so i i just started writing about like gigs and doing you know um like funny funny write-ups of like seeing entombed and seeing immortal and things like that uh and once i headed back to to southeast asia um and once i really discovered the scene here because when i was when i was living in malaysia from 2003 to 2000 eight uh aside from from jamming with some people and uh you know eventually uh finding out about the scene in 2007 and 2007 and seeing some local shows here um i really wasn't interacting with anybody and i I really didn't know uh what was going on and i knew something was going on because you know like i said you, you see people wearing metal shirts everywhere and you know you know what our culture is like. If you're wearing a Slayer shirt and he's wearing a Morbid Angel shirt, like you immediately start speaking to each other. Um, but uh, I didn't know how to find gigs. I didn't know where the gigs were happening. I didn't know, you know, who the local bands at the time were. I knew somewhat about the history of, of metal in Malaysia um, because when I came here to visit in uh, 2000, this would have been around the time Impiety put out an album through, I think it was Osmos. Or maybe Season of Mist? Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes, uh, vaguely. Now, Impiety is a Malaysian band, no? Uh, they're, they're Singaporean, which is very close to Malaysia. Like, it's literally um, uh, a car ride away from me. Uh, okay. And so, you know, because there was a scene in Singapore, like, obviously there had to be a scene in Malaysia. And so when I was visiting here in 2000, uh, you know, my cousins took me around to some record shops. And I, I just kept asking, like, you know... What are the local bands? Who are the local bands? Um, and I was able to find like a bunch of 
the bands from what would have been, I guess I would call it the first wave of Malaysian death metal. Um, so uh, when I was speaking about how, how few bands ha- had come to uh, the region uh, in the 80s and 90s, there is one exception. Uh, and that exception is Sepultura. Sepultura came, I believe, to Indonesia, maybe to Singapore as well, but I know for sure they came to Indonesia on the Arise tour. Um, and not coincidentally, there was a big wave of um, death metal and death thrash bands and you know proto-black metal bands that, that came out around that time, you know, late 80s, early 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think it's a I don't think it's a coincidence that most of them sounded a little bit like like Sepultura, um, and Sepultura w- were maybe even more than Slayer, maybe even more than any other um, death thrash or black metal band. Uh, a big influence in the region simply because they were from Brazil and they were from similar economic circumstances that we have here in Malaysia and probably similar situations in terms of, uh, you know, government censorship and restrictions and things like that. Um, and, you know, I can say personally that my, my feeling has always been, you know, if Sepultura can do it from Brazil, there's no reason why we can't do it from Malaysia. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense what you're saying. Um, and let me ask you this now, because you're talking about the first wave of Malaysian death metal, Sepultura goes over to that part of the world, and then other bands um, start kind of coming out, inspired by Sepultura. In light of that story you told us before of the gig getting shut down for, um, allegedly for political reasons and this sort of thing, I mean, what, are there any stories you know of, or, or any, you know, of, of this uh, of government oppression of first wave Malaysian death metal because we have these books about the first wave Swedish scene and Finnish scenes and all the one just came out about I believe the I think the Dutch scene is the new one that that they're that they're um, pre ordering right now but there's all these books the last few years about um, the early days of these scenes in the world we don't have a book yet about the first days of the Malaysian death metal scene was there any big way that that the government reacted to that because obviously you said that that quote unquote black metal was outlawed was there an incident or something that 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 comes to your memory that that's like the reason for that uh sort of and i've only heard about it third hand and even the stories i i heard when i think about it in retrospect it it doesn't really make sense but in terms of the official uh ban on black metal that that happened in malaysia it actually occurred after uh uh the Malaysian scene started taking shape mm-hmm. uh, in terms of the death and black metal bands. Um, and uh, so if we're talking about the period from like 92 to 99, when a lot of these bands were releasing their albums and playing gigs, the scene was, from what I understand, because I, I wasn't part of it and I wasn't living in Malaysia at the time, but from what I understand, the, the scene was actually extremely vibrant back then. Um and to the extent that it it may have been really popular, uh, like I said, when, when I came here um, in two thousand, uh, looking for looking for local bands, looking for to get some uh, some Malaysian death metal and black metal albums, um, I also went home, meaning back to Brooklyn, 
with a whole bunch of uh, like Norwegian and Swedish death metal and black metal cassettes um, that were that were in the record shops here because those bands were extremely popular. Um, mm. And so prior to the black metal band, the black metal band BAN, um, the scene here, from what I understand, was was pretty big and may have at various points uh, had gigs of up to a thousand or maybe even two thousand people. There was a a metal magazine called Rock of the Third World. Um, again, Sepultura connection, Third World Chaos, Third World Posse. Um, but they used to organize a fest every year that I believe was extremely well well attended. Okay. Okay. So, so you you were asking about an inciting incident, like what the inciting incident that might have been that led to uh, the government restriction, and we were, we were speaking about the early days of Norwegian black metal. So this is the timeline. Um, I guess around ninety six, ninety seven, Lords of Chaos comes out. Right. That's that, that was the okay. book about the Norwegian black metal scene. Okay. Um, so if I'm not mistaken, the black metal ban in Malaysia started around 99, 2000. And the story was that there were these kids who were, um, burning the Quran, which is the the Muslim holy book, the Muslim Bible, if you, if you want to put it that way, Mm -hmm. um, and drinking goat's blood. Now, like I said, the scene in Malaysia is pretty small. Everyone kind of knows everyone. And even though this was taking place in uh, one of the states up north, um, the scene was small enough that if you say um, you know, someone was doing this, people would know who that was, right? Like people would be like, oh, it was that guy from this band, or it was, you know, this kid who used to hang out with whatever. It wouldn't be like some anonymous thing. And very similar to the way that the Norwegian black metal scene gained infamy because of the way the tabloids in Norway were covering it. Uh, it was tabloids in Malaysia that were spreading these stories about, you know, these black metal kids who are doing this stuff. And, you know, to this day, I've never gotten any kind of corroboration that any of this ever happened as far as drinking blood and burning the Quran and all this other kind of stuff. Um, so I don't know. Uh, if anybody wants to put on their tinfoil hat with me and, huh. you know, um, uh, speculate on whether or not any of this stuff ever really happened or whether it was, you know, keep in mind that the um, the media in Malaysia is controlled by the government. Um, and so, you know, you go from stories in the Malaysian press uh, to a, a ban in um, a ban from the Malaysian government throughout the Malaysian media. Um I don't know. It 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 all seems a little bit suspect to me. Um, okay, this this is kind of like a satanic panic type of situation um, from from what I'm understanding. Like we had uh, a long time ago, we had author Jesse Pollock on who wrote the book The Acid King about an infamous story here on Long Island in the '80s. Um, where teenagers uh, involved in a homicide, it was attributed, much was made of it uh, being about witchcraft and Satan worship and really extreme things. And in reality, it, it, you know, it, ne- it wasn't necessarily like it was portrayed in the media and by the police. 
uh, at the time. And and it's something that we see commonly a lot through the 80s and early 90s in heavy metal culture. I don't know that we necessarily hear about it from other parts of the world like we just did, though. Yeah, no, but it, it, it's exactly as you said. It, it's very much a, a recurring theme. And, you know, one of the reasons why heavy metal subculture is, I mean, we're an easy target. We're an easy target for the the Geraldos and, you know, the, the Fox Newses of the world who... You know, all you have to do is open up a, a Cannibal Corpse album and, and read the lyrics huh. out loud, and you know, some church group is going to get offended by that and want to ban you. Yeah. you know what I mean. Um, Chris Chris Barnes and Glenn Benton didn't make it easy on us in that regard, <laughs> but for the like guys like me who just want to write about robots and plants, but but I love I love De- I love I love Deicide and Cannibal Corpse though. Point point taken though. Point taken. Uh, yeah, um, and so I, I I forget, you know, and and there have been a number of incidents. Uh, throughout the years of the cops shutting down shows, uh, arresting people, uh, all in the name of this quote-unquote black metal band. The funny thing is um, Megadeth somehow got uh, got roped into this band, which briefly made uh, international news that Malaysia had banned Megadeth. Um, and Dave Mustaine gave some kind of funny quip about how, okay, I guess I'm black metal now or something like that. Huh. Um but uh, Megadeth actually did play Malaysia uh, a few years ago, um, uh, a few years pre-COVID. Uh, so maybe maybe things were or are uh, moving in in a more open direction. Um, but I don't know. We'll we'll see. Well, I guess Malaysia might be more open than uh, Megadeth. Now Megadeth's touring with Five Finger Death Punch. Uh, in the in the states in the states now, I was joking before another another episode with my buddy Rick when we were when we were giving our little uh, concert calendar because uh, the, the, they're playing Long Island here, and I love Long Island. Everyone knows I'm a proud Long Islander, Long Island death metal all the way and everything. But there's definitely a a, a certain kind of like uh, a drunk retired cop fraternity <laughs> that turns out to these classic uh, metal shows sometimes man you, you know you got to watch uh, but but that's that's for another another time i don't want to draw you off the the topic um too much and i i don't want to i don't want to cut you off you know if uh if you had any other thoughts on this really interesting topic of government censorship of heavy metal culture, um, please go ahead. Uh, but I also do eventually want to want to get um, some of your experiences dealing with metal artists uh, on the scene, like at shows and stuff like that. Uh, I mean, I don't really have any any real personal experiences with um, with censorship or with. The cops. I mean, every so often I, I will get stopped by cops because I don't look Malaysian uh, and I don't sound Malaysian. And um, every so often people will ask me like where I'm from, where I'm going, what I'm up to, things like uh. that. Um, but yeah, other than that, it's uh, uh, I don't really have it. I don't have any any other insight to uh, censorship in Malaysia. I mean, the thing is. The kids in the scene grew up with it. Do you know what I mean? They grew up with all these restrictions. They grew up with the government controlling the media, um, and it. To me, that's that's part of the reason why it was it was so important for me to document what they're doing here, and to write about it and, and to bring some awareness to it. Just because you know, in in other parts of the world, buying a ticket and going to a metal show is no big deal. Buying a metal T-shirt is no big deal. You know, even ordering. Um, you know, a, a package online of like 
books and CDs and T-shirts and things like that it isn't really something um, you'd think twice about. But in Malaysia, like they, um, you know, you, you have to be kind of kind of clever about it, and you know, because there's always the fear that customs will seize it and say, "Nope, you're not allowed to have this," or "We don't want you to have this," or maybe even. Uh, I want this, and I'm going to say that it's illegal, and I'm going to take it home with me. You know, um, so that's those are the kinds of uh, things that the the kids in, in the scene have been dealing with for the last uh, twenty, thirty years. Wow, man, um, a lot to think about there, and you know, we normally don't get political on the podcast or anything like that, but I would just say. Uh, with recent developments here in the United States, those type of things might not be so unrealistic to think about, uh, unfortunately. Um, and I'll leave it there for the listener. Now, you mentioned writing. Um, we know Dreams of Consciousness podcast and dreamsofconsciousness.com where you cover a variety of extreme metal artists. But if somebody wanted to read some of your writing that wasn't necessarily... Uh, interviews and reviews of, of heavy metal. Is there a specific platform you have? Uh, well, well, right now I'm struggling to think of what that might be. I mean, I, I did work professionally as a copywriter for um, for some companies, but uh, it's not work I'm proud of. <laughs> <laughs> just, just what I had to do to pay the rent. But... Um, uh, I mean, are you speaking about like me writing about the culture or anything like that? Well, well, yeah, you mentioned writing about it, so I just I didn't know if you had uh, maybe a blog yourself or if there was articles you had written or something for uh, you know another um, uh, outlet. Well, it, it was more of the... When I resurrected Dreams of Consciousness as a blog and I moved back to Malaysia in 2011 and I discovered the scene and started going to shows, I would write about the experience of going to the shows. So there weren't really um, reviews and they weren't really interviews it was more of just like hey th th there's a thing that's happening here there's you know it, it was just it's it just my uh mind-blowing and eye-opening for me that uh you know even in the small diy space that was catering to less than less than 100 people they're putting so much work into um into having these shows where you know you'd pay 15 ringgit or 20 ringgit which is which would be the equivalent of about four or five dollars um and you'd get a cd because it was a cd release show and then you'd see five or six bands play some of them uh, came from singapore some of them came from uh, other parts of malaysia uh, a few times a band would even come from thailand and then on your way out they'd give you a poster of the gig that you just saw um that's great and of course and and there would be like a shirt commemorating the gig um and this was like every week <laughs> or, you know, a couple times a month. And I was like, you know, people need to know about this. Like, this is like, I've been going to gigs every week since I was 18 years old and I've never experienced anything like this. Um, and so I just wanted, you know, uh, I just wanted to raise awareness of what was happening um, locally. Okay. Got, and, and that blog is so, still... So as far as, as far as, yeah, as far as like where you'd find that... Uh, you would have to drill pretty deep into the blog um, to post <laughs> that I was that I was doing um, back in like 2011, 2012. Uh, but you know, there are photos there. Um, I don't think there are any videos, but there are a lot of photos of the bands um, and me writing. And you know, unfortunately, you have to 
you have to deal with what I consider wit, my one-liners and my, my weird <laughs> in-jokes and my Simpsons references. But if you get if you can get through all that, um, I think you'll you'll get a pretty good sense of what the scene was like at that time. Okay, that's great because just for our listeners who might be um, uh, interested, as I am, in, in this kind of compelling part of the discussion, learning something different about uh, a place we've I've never been, um, that 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 might be a good place to to go back and and uh, read a little bit more about your perspective on that. Um, and you know, I just want to mention too, in preparing for this interview today, I was on the Dreams of Consciousness YouTube channel. Um, which is a very easy way. Obviously, we have dreamsofconsciousness.com, uh, but the YouTube channel is a nice, easy way to kind of scroll through interviews with artists like Origin, Rottenness, um, uh, Rados de Pareo, classic Brazilian band, uh, who I'm probably mispronouncing, Author and Punisher, Hyperdontia, Hooded Menace, Solstice, the list goes on and on and on. Reeking Aura, you were just kind enough to feature us on there. Um, and so on and so forth. So I just wanted to pick your brain about because the first time I met you, Adrian, it was on the streets in Brooklyn somewhere, if I remember correctly. And you had interviewed me back when I was in uh, the band Artificial Brain many years ago. Um, so maybe like just because because I think like it takes balls to, to be at a show and to just strike up a conversation and, and ask an artist for an interview who you don't even know. You know what I mean? So like how how does that man on the street element of your um, career covering metal come come to, to fruition? OK, so it starts with pure ignorance. It starts with <laughs> me not knowing a better way to do this. Uh if if I if I'd known how to do like Skype interviews and Zoom interviews back then, I don't think I would have been doing the man on the street interviews. So let's 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 go back to to 2012. Uh, you know, I'm discovering the scene. Uh, I'm discovering all these bands uh, from not just Malaysia but Singapore, the Philippines, and I'm like, you know, people have to know about this. You know, somebody's got to somebody's got to talk about this. Um, and because of like the DIY background that I came from, uh, you know. It, if you if you're if you're saying something needs to be done, if you're saying somebody needs to do something about this, you are that person. You are the person who needs to to make that happen. And I tried to get people that I knew who wrote about this for like wrote about metal for like um, you know Terrorizer or Decibel. You know, I knew a couple of guys who had a metal podcast, and I sent them some music. Uh, and nobody nobody really seemed to be that interested. Um, and I was like, well, if nobody else is going to do this, then I'm going to have to do this. And here's the thing. Um, I am not a social person, uh, like doing a podcast and reaching out to strangers. And, you know, this is so, so far outside of my comfort zone. Uh, even when I go to gigs, you know, like I, I rarely speak to people, um, it took me a long time, you know, when I first started going to shows in, in New York, you know, sometimes you'd strike up a conversation with somebody because, you know, we're 200 people at Coney Island High all wearing black t-shirts at, at a DSI show. We have more in common with each other than we do with anyone else in our lives. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. Um, so why wouldn't we, why wouldn't we all be friends? But it took me a long time. It took me almost 25 years to realize that it mm -hmm. took me, you know, took me a long time to realize like this is this is a community that this is you know this is where you find the people who have the same values and interests as you um and so I, I never really spoke to people i never really made friends in the scene until fairly recently um but then once 
you know, in my weird, like OCD, autistic, manic way, once I, once I decided that I had to cover the scene and, you know, I had to write about it or, you know, spread the word about it in some way, um, then it became imperative that I started to reach out to people and ask them, Hey, do you mind if I, if I, um, use some of your songs in, in this thing that I'm doing. Um, okay. And so you're, you're asking about where people can find the original version of dreams of consciousness, where I, I spoke, uh, about the, the local scene, um, or what was happening in Southeast Asia. If people want to go to any of the podcast platforms that dreams of consciousness is on and scroll all the way back to the very first episodes, you'll notice that they're called mixtapes. And the reason why they're called mixtapes is in 2012, I was trying to explain to people, you know, in Malaysia and Singapore and in the Philippines, what I was doing and why I was asking for their music and why, um, you know, what I was doing with it. I was like, well, I'm doing a podcast about, you know, the scene in Southeast Asia. What's a podcast? Uh, well, it's kind of like a mixtape on the internet. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and so for a long time, I was calling every new episode of Dreams of Consciousness a mixtape. So like, you know, mixtape 12, Kailesa, mixtape, whatever, you know. Um, and what I found out years later, or after I'd been doing Dreams of Consciousness, the, the Dreams of Consciousness podcast for a few years, is people had been doing podcasts in Malaysia for years before me. And so I have no idea why people couldn't understand what I was talking about when I said... <laughs> You know, I'm, I'm doing a podcast. You know, one of, the godfather of the local punk scene is a guy named Joe Kidd, who was in a band called Carburetor Dung. And he used to, you know, I was, I was telling you about how um, there were local record stores. Um, uh, and at one point, um, the scene was actually quite big. Uh, Joe Kidd was a big part of that. And he was, he was operating a show, uh, he was operating a store in um, Central Market, which is a big, uh, um, a big spot in, in the middle of Kuala Lumpur, in the middle of the capital of Malaysia. And he had his own shop called Rice Cooker. So he was kind of um, like imagine like Generation Records, like a really small Generation Records or Bleaker Bobs, but also like he played guitar in Warzone and also he was um, Lester Bangs writing about the scene. Do you know what I mean? Like he was all that in one. Okay. Um and he was an, an earlier adopter of of doing podcasts, and he had his own podcast. Um, and so I don't know why it was it was so complicated for people to understand uh, what I was doing and why I needed their music. But anyways, um, so uh, to your question about the the man on the street interviews, um, I had a really hard time doing the early version of the podcast, which was like this Mark Marin slash am radio guy telling you about the songs that you're about to hear and the songs that you just heard um and you know i i really at no point have i ever been comfortable speaking in public really at no point have i ever liked hearing my own voice um and yet i had to do it for this podcast and so i would write a script and i would yeah, I almost had to become like this character. I almost had to become this like podcast host character in order to, to convincingly sell, you know, to convincingly talk about all all the stuff that was happening in the scene. And it was so hard for me. Like I would record every segment three times. You know, I would record it 
and then I'll listen back and just hate what I heard and do it again and listen back and hate it even more and then do it a third time and just be like, fuck it, good enough. Um, and that happened for about two or three episodes until I did uh, a podcast about Singapore. And I'm good friends with a band in Singapore called Bloodstone, who are this super cool, like old school thrash kind of band. Um, and I thought rather than, you know, me speak about a country where I don't live and speak about the scene, why don't I just get my friends to talk about it? And that's where the man on the street interview came from. Because I bought a $20 MP3 recorder and I was hanging out with my friends Bloodstone. And I said, hey, do you want to just talk about the scene? And, you know, well, I'll stick it on the, uh, on the Singapore mixtape. And from there, that was like the lightning bolt, which was like, okay, this is the format. This is the version of the podcast that I can be comfortable with because it's just me asking questions and somebody else doing the talking and I can edit it later and, you know, edit out all the parts of me talking. <laughs> and that's probably the best version of the podcast that there could be, <laughs> uh, the one where I, where I speak the least. Um, and from there it was, you know, every time I went, uh, you know, to the Philippines, I would hang out with my friends with the Philippines and ask them, Hey, you, you want to, you want to do a podcast interview? Um, and then, uh, it, from there branched out to, you know, I guess around like the ninth or the 10th mixtape, uh, it stopped being centered around the local scene because there's only so many times you can interview your own friends. I don't know if you found that with Heavy Hole. Tell me about it. I don't know if you've reached, I don't know if, I don't know if you've reached that point yet. Um, but there is a point where you can only like interview the same, like five or six people so many times. Um, and so, but we did have some bands coming in from overseas. Like, uh, you know, one of the local promoters was able to get Kylesa to come in and, and play a show here. Uh, and so I, I spoke to Philip Cope from Kylesa. And then, you know, I was still going back to New York and visiting my friends, mostly uh, for weddings, because between like 2012 and, no, let's see, 2013 to 2015, it seemed like almost all of my friends got married one after another. And they all, coincidentally, luckily for me, um, schedule their weddings for like uh, the weekend or two weekends before Maryland Death Fest. So I just kind of made this um, this long two-week trip or, two, or three-week trip where I'd go, you know, go to my friend's wedding and then spend another, you know, three weeks seeing shows or two weeks seeing shows and then uh, hitting Death Fest and then heading home. Um, and during that period, every time I went to the show, I would have my cheap little uh, Sony MP3 recorder and head up people like you, uh, hit up my mitochondrion, you know, wh whoever, whoever was playing and just be like, Hey, you know, are you interested in, in speaking to me uh, for this podcast? Um, and that's, that's where the man on the street interview came from. And this was back when I was doing the podcast monthly. So I would, I would try to get as many interviews as I could during that two or three week period. Um, and then just, uh, release them month after month. Uh, Okay. All right. So, um, so we get to that point where you're going to shows and just finding people and, uh, getting the interviews. Was there anyone in particular, you've interviewed a lot of people over the years. Was there anyone in particular that you were like, wow, that guy, I can't believe that guy talked to me. Like, like who is in, you know, just in your perspective as a fan of, of music, who's like the biggest interview you've gotten? I mean, the Barney Greenway interview was a big deal for me right? Just because of how yeah. much I love Napalm and, uh, you know how much that band meant 
to me. And also the fact that I had uh, an interview scheduled with Napalm a few years prior, which fell through. Uh, for reasons I'm not going to go through, but I don't think it was my fault. <laughs> I, was, I was where I was supposed to be uh, when the interview was supposed to happen. But and you know, some people had, had made some comments because uh, this was still early years in, into the blog and the podcast, uh, who were like, "Well, you know, you, you can't expect a, a small um, blog like yours to interview Napalm Death." And so it was kind of nice to. To, to have that laurel in my head and be like, oh, well, you know, I guess a, a small blog and podcast like me can interview Napalm Death. Yeah. Um, but uh, it, speaking of which, I, I need to give a shout out to, to two people um, uh, just because I want to make sure we do this before um, we run out of time. Three people, actually. Um, so the first is the format of the podcast till this day is based on the Requiem Metal podcast. I just stole their format. Um, which was the song and then the talk set and then the song and then the talk set and then, you know, finishing up like that. Um, and so I was a big fan of what Mark and Jason were doing with Requiem. And, you know, when I started doing this thing, it, it was very much with that format in mind before it became more of a, an interview show. Um, and so the joke, the joke I like to make, uh, because Requiem calls, calls themselves the NPR of death metal, <laughs> the, uh, the car talk of death metal. Um, and so I started saying, well, you know, I, I, I'm the Terry Gross of death metal. I'm, I'm the other side of MPR. Um, yeah, you have the soothing voice for it. <laughs> <laughs> I love it, man. Well, you know. And, and the other, well, the other, the other person I need to mention, as, as far as people um, telling me that, you know, I, I shouldn't expect to speak to Napalm Death because I only have a small blog or whatever. Um, I, I have a friend named Apple who uh, was part of the local scene here, yet he's been in a bunch of grindcore bands. And one day he just decided that he was going to do an old school cut and paste photocopied zine, like the classic 80s zines. Um, and he reached out to Carcass, he reached out to Bolt Thrower, he reached out to Benediction, he reached out to everybody. Um, and just by not, like not going through proper channels or not knowing a better way to do it or not knowing how you're supposed to do it, quote unquote supposed to do it, in terms of like, you know, record labels and promotional companies and management and stuff like that. He basically got every interview that I'd ever wanted to get. Um, and, uh, you know, he did in the zine, you know, and his English is, is uh, extremely basic and limited. Uh, and it didn't matter. None of that mattered. All that mattered was that he was passionate about it and he made up his mind he was going to do it and he got it done. Um, and that to me is, is, uh, a big inspiration for, you know, because you know you, you've probably run into the same frustration that I run into, where you know band is maybe too big, or you know they, they don't understand your platform, or they don't know who you are, and so it's easy for um, a record company or a uh, or management or whoever to brush you off. Um, but I think once you're speaking to the bands themselves, the bands recognize who who is sincere and who like really enjoys their music. And they love talking to the people who actually enjoy their music, or that's been my experience at least. I agree with you 100%. Um, I've said it before. We don't really, I typically don't deal with record labels or publicists or managers or anyone like that. If I can't get an interview right from the artist, I get a little turned off because I've had, I've just had a bad experience one time with a record label. 
a publicist type of person who kind of wanted me to interview their their newer tier of bands that I didn't really know to kind of work up to this uh, bigger interview they were going to dangle in front of me. And I just don't like playing those games. Um, so I'll, I'll just kind of cold message 10 people on Facebook or Instagram or email addresses I get from their website or something um, and hope to hear something back. And you're right, too, because like speaking to, say, Trevor from Obituary, um or uh, Lee Harrison from Monstrosity those guys were really down to earth and cool and like or the guys from Brutality man like these guys that are legends to me uh who I grew up listening to most of the times when you get the band members and they realize that you have a genuine respect for what they do they're um open to whatever you want to talk about you know and anyone else out there starting a uh, a podcast like this or a YouTube channel or even a zine like you were talking about your friend did uh yeah don't get discouraged at all man like pick 10 artists that you think are too big to ever talk to you and reach out and i I bet you at least one of them will uh give you uh, some form of interview or response but but you know what i I also think it is because you know of the interviews i've done um if somebody gives me attitude it's usually a younger band a band that's on their like second or third album (laughs) and they're getting some attention and you know Maybe they're on a magazine cover for the first time. And all they've ever experienced is new highs. Do you know what I mean? Yes. All they've ever experienced is, oh, you know, we used to play for 20 people. Then we were playing to 50 people. Now we're playing to 200 people. You know, we're booking festivals where we're playing to 1,000 people. They've only ever seen um, the arrow go up. They've only ever seen the chart go up. You know, here's a Simpsons reference. Do you know the, um, uh, the Disco Stew uh, episode where he's talking about how how well disco is going to do because if the trends continue like if disco continues on this trend from 1979 onwards hey and so that's that's kind of how i feel about these these younger bands wow they've only ever experienced the highs of the last five years they have no idea like how quickly the scene will turn against you once you stop being what they want you to be do you know what i mean yes that right there is good medicine for all the old elitists like myself who get bitter and envious of these younger bands just just remember these guys are going to get their comeuppance too man you meet the same people on the way down you do on the way up (laughs) but here's the thing like you know matt harvey was one of the best interviews i've ever had it wasn't even an interview it was just a conversation it was just two guys who love metal talking about metal and matt harvey had the best stories and, you know, where was Matt Harvey 30 years ago? He was making music that was so deeply unpopular that all the record companies got rid of their death metal bands and their grindcore bands. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? You know, yeah. his own band broke up uh, at one point. Um, and so, like, the guys like Matt Harvey and um, uh, Paul Masvidal from Cynic, like, it wasn't even like their, their band went away. Their entire style of music went away. You know, the, the the entire genre went away. Record companies went away. Um, and so I think it's guys like that who've who've had to pick themselves up from from that deflation, from that low point, are the ones who really appreciate people wanting to talk about them, about their music, because they know how quickly, they've, they've experienced how quickly that can go away. You're absolutely right. And on that note, a similar story, I have, a similar example I think I could provide of what you're talking about. Steve Grimmett of Grim Reaper 
Uh, we interviewed him very, he was one of the very first heavy hole interviews we ever did. And it still inspires me to this day to think that I got that and how patient he was with us through technical difficulties. And he recounted his whole story. He recounted the peaks and valleys of his career, which there are many, and it's very long running career. Uh, you know, from, from the 1980s when, uh, he was, um, uh, very popular with Grim Reaper to an era where he was with, with other projects and he was touring in Japan a lot and very popular over there to losing his leg on tour, um, having to get his leg amputated on tour as a result of an infection. And, you know, I've seen the guy come back after that and play uh, a very small pub here on Long Island. Um, to a to a humble crowd because as you say you know that style of eighties heavy metal that Grim Reaper is known for and Steve Grimmett are known for obviously not as fashionable as it once was um, but just to speak to your point that guy is one of the coolest most humble people I've ever met and his years of experience definitely I think shine through in that respect man so you're absolutely right some of the older artists who've been through the meat grinder of the music industry probably are some of the most respectful of what we're trying to do by by tell their story. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, for all the bands that like, because I, I remember, you know, growing up and reading like Metal Hammer or whatever. Um, and sometimes like there would be a concert review, which would be a little bit snarky about how, oh, you know, they used to play stadiums, but now they're only playing to 100 people or whatever. But, you know, those are the bands that are sincere. Um, those are the bands that are really doing it because they love it. Uh, yeah. And... You know, a lot of these bands that are, you know, playing to, uh, you know, a couple hundred or maybe even, you know, thousands of people now, um, I I remember seeing them, uh, Electric Wizard, you know, I remember seeing Electric Wizard play to less than 100 people on a Tuesday night. Um, and, you know, I tell these stories and people think that I'm like patting myself on the back <laughs> and it's like, no, man, like all you have to do is, is show up. You know what I mean? Like, people think that I'm that I'm lying when I say I, I saw Catharsis in 1997. Man, in 1997, nobody gave a shit. Like, I I wouldn't even bother to lie about seeing that band back then. You know what I mean? That's how few people were at were at CB that night. Um, and uh, for for the bands that like you know they got big and then they got small again and now they're playing to, to smaller crowds. In a weird way, like it's more fun to see them at that point because. Uh, you know, it, a lot of the pressure is off on them, and they can just like be who they want to be, and and not you know, not chase like whatever whatever success the the record company is dangling in front of them. You know what I mean? I agree, man, a hundred percent. And like it's like you said, the bands that used to sell out stadiums, and now they're playing the county fair or whatever it is, or playing some bar you know in town. Like I said, Steve Grimmett from Grim Reaper playing. Uh, a, a smaller bar, you know, rock club here on Long Island. That's what I want to go see, honestly. Like, I look for that. I look for the bands from the 80s that are still coming out um, and playing the small bars and the small venues because there's something, I, there's like a stubborn respect that I have to have uh, for those guys, man. Um, and, and I, you know, I always try, I was just saying before, to, uh, accept from Germany 
playing. Uh, yeah, they're they're playing out here on Long Island coming up uh, very soon this fall in September sometime, and they're playing an area of Long Island that you typically do not see a lot of heavy metal shows at. That it isn't it, like you know you you're, you know you've been in New York City. You know that East Long Island isn't the most accessible place from the five boroughs. You know what I mean. So for except to come out and play East Long Island is like a big deal. A lot of people are going to be excited for that. So I, I, you know, that, that that's just that's the type of shows I'm trying to go to as well, man. Is like the um, the bands that have been through that grinder. Uh, Adrian, you've been so uh, generous with your time, and I re- a really compelling story and compelling information you've given us um, about the the Malaysian death metal scene and some of the history there. Uh, Dreams of Consciousness podcast. You, you, people can follow you on social media. Obviously, they can go to dreamsofconsciousness.com. Like I said, interviews with Origin, Rottenness. Here's one. Uh, you interviewed Black Tape for a Blue Girl. A uh, long, in-depth interview with a pioneering, I guess I'll say dark wave artist from kind of like that the, the overarching like gothic scene. Not necessarily what I was expecting. Before we get out of here quickly, I just wanted to ask you what your experience was with that type of scene and with what we'll just call, for lack of a better term, generalizing uh, goth music um, and that sort of thing, man. Because I didn't, I didn't realize that that was also part of your coverage. Uh, it, it, it really is. I mean... So the reason why it's dreams of consciousness or why I kept it dreams of consciousness and not like dooms of consciousness or dreams of grindliness or, you know, death of bloodliness or whatever, you know, one of these blogs that have like culture black or grave in their name um, was because I've, I've always been omnivorous in, in what I, what I listen to and what I like, uh, you know, I just like all kinds of underground music. Um, blue tape for, a black girl is, is or sorry black tape for a blue girl that's uh, what is it I'm, I'm even getting the band name wrong now i, I think it's I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's black tape for a blue girl um but I, I, for- I admittedly am not huge into that scene but that is an artist i do have a lot of respect for so don't don't edit this out i, I want to make sure that everybody hears my old man moment <laughs> where i'm getting the name of my own uh interviewer they've they've, they've, they've heard plenty of my old man moments don't worry <laughs> Um, okay, just give me one second. Black tape for a blue girl. Okay, let's let's. Uh, apologies, everyone. Uh, it's forty three. Been punched in the head a bunch of times. <laughs> uh, these things happen. But um, so black tape for a blue girl. At, at a time when I was when I was trading a lot of music and getting into a lot of like, you know, um, stuff that was kind of outside the margins of metal. So. Uh, this would have been about 2007. You know, I'm listening to Earth. I'm listening to Angelic Process, and people are just recommending stuff. Getting into like Doom Drone bands, like um, uh, I, I mentioned Earth. There's a really uh, great band from from New Zealand whose name I'm blanking on for some reason, but they're named after um, Blackbone Angel. If anybody knows that band, um, so so I'm hearing all this stuff that like I don't even really know like. You know if it's metal or not but people are recommending it to me and, and so i'm checking it out and black tape for blue girl were one of these bands and i didn't i didn't know what they were and it was just this yeah. like strange ambient dark music uh, and you know it i always wanted to get them on 
the podcast and, and speak to Sam Rosenthal about his music, um, wasn't really aware of like their connection to the goth scene or, you know, he he had a he had a term for what he described as music, uh, and dark wave was in there, and that was strange to me because I always thought dark wave was like synth pop kind of stuff. Do you know what I mean? Um, uh, so I'm not really that familiar with the scene, but the reason why um, that band was there was because um, there is a label that's been sending me music from more of like the ambient experimental world, and I don't write about a lot of that stuff, and I never reviewed it just because I don't know how to write about it in an intelligent way. Mm. Like I don't know how to t- how to you know tell you that one drone band is better than another drone band or that this is a good drone album or this is a bad drone album. Do you know what I mean? But when I hear something and I like it, um, like I don't have a problem recommending it. Um, and Black Tape was, Black Tape was one of those bands. Um, and his current vocalist is a guy named John DeRosa um, who has a, a project called Arctica. And so this ambient label sent me the last Arctica album, and I had a, um, I knew John through, through that, and um, uh, interviewed him for the podcast. Uh, and then when he started working with Sam Rosenthal of Black Tape, I reached out to him again. I was like, "Hey, do you want to do you want to speak about this new Black Tape album?" And he, um, as an aside, I have a podcast about music and i don't think i've ever pronounced the word album correctly (laughs) album 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 anyways um so you know i reached out to sam sorry i reached out to john and said hey do you want to talk about the new black tape album and he said well do you want to speak to both me and sam and so that's how that that interview came about and you know it it to me that's an important interview because it's i don't want to be tied to one thing yes you know as much as i love death metal um you know death metal can be very clicky and death metal can be very trendy in terms of like oh old school death metal is in now primitive death metal is in now caveman death metal is in now and you know i i, I do remember very quick uh i do remember very clearly uh 20 years ago when if a band wasn't up to a certain level of technicality like if a band couldn't play like nile fans did not give that band the time of day do you know what i mean and so all these trends kind of cycle in and out of death metal and so i've learned not to be tied to like whatever's fashionable at that moment um and my north star has always been like if i listen to it and i like it it's going on the podcast regardless of what kind of music uh it is um and related to that there's another band that i was really really stoked to speak to called dead space chamber music and they call what they do medieval dance music and um if that tells you nothing uh that's probably good because I personally could not describe what they do. It's another like strange experimental one of a kind band that has, you know, heavy guitars sometimes, but also a lot of drone and a lot of like weird swansish noise. Mm. Um, and you know, like I don't see a point where dreams of consciousness will ever go completely in that direction. But, uh, you know, for people who know me and know that I always love like weird bands and, you know, uh, something like sleep you know sleep was completely out of left field when they when they did jerusalem um and but it you know people came around to it in 10 15 years um and i always try to you know think about these bands that like nobody cared about until everybody cared about them at the same time um and that's that's my approach to like these weird bands that like 
on the surface, they don't seem to make uh, much sense for a death metal podcast to cover. But the people who make death metal are a lot more open-minded and listen to a lot more, a, a lot of varied types of music, um, more so than their fans. Um, and so I think you start to see like music like this bleeding into death and black metal and doom um, in ways that you that aren't immediately clear but they all kind of belong in the same uh, same spectrum, so to speak. Fair enough. I agree, man. Um, exactly. And uh, I think that's a good place to, to leave off about dreams of consciousness uh, because people can expect artists, like I said before, Hyperdancha, Hooded Menace, Solstice, Origin, also Author and Punisher, and some uh, maybe off more off the beaten path artists. I like when you curate a variety. That's something that I try to do myself uh, as best I can. Uh, you don't want to just pigeonhole uh, what you cover. So, Adrian, like I said before, you've been really generous with your time. Uh, and just to wind down, I'm going to ask you the traditional heavy hole question. Uh, to recommend one older and one newer release by any artist you like, metal or otherwise, demo, EP, album, whatever, just something a little bit older and something a little bit newer uh, to recommend for me and the listeners. And then, of course, um, you can uh, promote and um, uh, place anything that I failed to mention. So my favorite album of all time is Beneath the Remains by Sepultura. Good one. Like I said, Sepultura were a, a big, um, had a, big impact on the scene here in Southeast Asia. But on me personally, my journey to this very underground music starts with Sepultura. Um, and, you know, I, I still feel like, you know, every time I get like uh, uh, a new email or a new, um, hear about a new band, I still feel like I'm 15 years old looking through the liner notes of Beneath the Remains and seeing all these bands that I've never heard of, like wondering, man, how am, I, how am I going to hear all of this? How am I going to find all these bands? You know, Dorsal Atlantica, Creator, Sodom, you know what I mean? Um, and so that's that's probably my favorite album of all time. As far as uh, new music, um, you know, there are a couple bands that have been on the podcast, or I've been on the blog before and I've also been on the podcast before, um, who've kept uh, kept releasing albums and I've, I've kept in touch with them and um, you know they've been regularly on the podcast and the blog throughout the years um, one of them is deformatory if I'm not mistaken I may have been the first or maybe one of the first interviews they ever did uh, and they were also one of the first interviews I ever did um, and they've got a new four song EP coming out called Harbinger uh, I believe it's, it's it'll be out sometime in September um, so if anybody wants to go to their Bandcamp page and check that check them out uh, if you like Origin, if you like Cryptopsy, if you love Canadian death metal, uh, that's definitely a band uh, that you should check out. What was the name again? Deformatory. Deformatory. Okay, we'll dive. I've heard the name kicked around. I got to get into that. Uh, all right, so Adrian Camoens of Dreams of Consciousness podcast, dreamsofconsciousness.com. Is there anything I failed uh, to bring up or, or plug or promote uh, in relation to that or, or any other projects you might have? No, man. Uh, I, I really appreciate you taking the time. You know, it's always good to talk to you, Will. Uh, you've you've been on the blog a few times. You've been on the podcast a few times. Uh, you know, I I really like what you're doing with Heavy Hole. Um, there is, uh, I don't know, do you want to take over Dreams of Consciousness too? <laughs> I feel like I'm, I'm, ready to, I'm ready to hand off the reins. No, because we, we need you and... 
Podcasts aren't like bands. I can't have seven of them at a time. Uh, if it was a band, I, there might be a chance I would just say, yeah, sure. Um, but yeah, the, the podcasts are a little bit more involved than the bands in their own way. You can't have too many going on at the same time, man. But no, we need you in the game, uh, Adrian. I'm not going to let you quit just yet, man. Uh, and for the listeners... Um, I strongly urge them to check out Dreams of Consciousness podcast on whatever platform it's available to them in, and also your mixtapes that you continue to put out, uh, links to with various uh, artists and, and all that sort of thing. It's it's all available on dreamsofconsciousness.com. Uh, Adrian, thank you very much. And any parting words for listeners of your podcast or listeners of my podcast? Uh, you know, I just want to thank everyone uh, who has checked out the podcast and listened to the podcast in the past, you know, we live in an age where there is no shortage of content, no shortage of options for you to spend your time. Uh, and so if you, you know, if you spend an hour with me or with Will, uh, you know, just know that it's it's very much appreciated. Um, as, as far as the YouTube page, uh, uh, I started the YouTube page as um, another option for people to, to get the... Um, to hear some of the interviews, but what's on the YouTube page is just clips, usually like uh, 12 to 15 minutes from a longer hour-long interview. Um, so if you find a interview on the YouTube page that you like, uh, just know that there's a link somewhere there where you can, where you'll be taken to the full interview. As far as the mixtapes that Will mentioned, um, I'm not doing album reviews anymore for reasons that are too long to go into right now. Um, but I do like to promote new music, especially music that um, is from the underground, from bands that aren't uh, aren't well known. Um, and so the mixtapes are a way for me to to get that music out there. Um, and there are a lot of weird surprises on those mixtapes. I like to I like to keep it. Al- I I don't like to have um, even though I have done it in the past. Um, but I, I don't like to have uh, you know twelve of the same type of band on on one mixtape so um expect it to get a little weird at times <laughs> awesome yeah it's it's a great um service kind of like the old school compilations we used to get back in the days before the internet um so uh, adrian like i said thank you very much for your time and for everything you do uh we'll be on the lookout for dreams of consciousness in the future man appreciate it thanks so much well it's always good catching up with you awesome man. and uh, i'm just gonna give me one sec Okay, thank you very much to Adrian Camoens for his. Um, uh, thank you very much to Adrian Camoens, tonight's guest from Dreams of Consciousness podcast, for this discussion. Um, we went all over the place. Uh, we talked about metal, but we talked about a lot of other things. I really appreciate that. Shout out to him. Please check out his work. As I said, the uh, Dreams of Consciousness YouTube ta- YouTube channel was a great resource for me um, in re- doing research for tonight's episode. You get kind of little samples of different interviews he's done, and you can um, you know you can go further onto his website if you want to get the whole thing. Uh, and as we mentioned before. 
Uh, in the spirit of tonight's episode, our, all of our correspondents and our extreme metal underground journalists here at Heavy Hole Podcast that we mentioned before, Tyler Craig, former uh, Maryland Death Fest correspondent of this year, uh, this year's team, didn't he ring a, ring a bell? Yeah, tonight. He, oh, he rung in. Yeah. Yo, what's up, guys? Tyler Craig coming at you from Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Here on vacation, jamming out some music, smoking some gar- some cigars on the balcony. At- at my beach house right now, living the dream. Guys, I just wanted to thank you all for the catch-up episode you guys did a couple weeks ago, and especially for including the recommendation from, I think, another patron off of Patreon. Whoever recommended that Berberus album, I want to personally thank whoever it was that did that, because that album has been on repeat for the entire week up to this point, I have not um, always been a fan of black and death metal. I used to love it a lot more a few years ago than I do now. But listening to this album really just reinvigorated my appreciation for the blending of the genres. Um, I love this record. It is so atmospheric, so dark, it's so brooding but it has just the right amount of elements of death metal and black metal all together to form one really dark, oppressive, brooding-sounding album. And i got to say, this band needs to be bigger than they are right now. There's only like a 1,000 listeners on Spotify last time I looked, but definitely needs more spotlight. This band has it. So... Thanks again, guys. Appreciate it. Y'all take it easy. Peace. All right. Tyler Craig phoning in from Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, uh, co-signing Verberus, um, German band that was recommended to us several weeks ago. V-E-R-B-E-R-I-S. Uh, they have a band camp. I believe Adumbration of the Veiled Logos was the album that we... Uh, checked out that day. Do, do, do we remember who recommended that? Yeah, Panacords. Panacords, uh, he, he just throws awesome stuff at us all the time, and we're assholes for not always looking. But uh, uh, hey, we're, we're busy guys. We got dogs to feed, we got cats to take to the vet, all sorts of crazy stuff happens. You know, sometimes you got to watch the movie Cars with your nephew. It ha- you know, come on. It's a wild, woolly world. Yeah. Uh, But, yeah, we always take your recommendations seriously. So does Tyler Craig, apparently. This is a good one to go back to for the listeners. Check it out. movie cars have you ever seen that no i haven't actually you're supposed to watch it picture it as like a post-apocalyptic dystopian movie because there's no human beings anymore the cars are all artificially intelligent oh it's deep there's a lot to it who makes the cars then these are the the horrors that you're supposed to plumb your own imagination with it's like alfred hitchcock they leave it to the imagination right it's left off screen it's uh it was deep 
Yeah. Okay. We don't watch Cars three too. My net. My nephew said Cars three is off limits. Shit. Too scared. They go too, too far. Scary? Uh, too scary. Too far. Oh. Um. They go too far. But you can never go too far. Uh, off the deep end by calling Heavy Hole Podcast and leaving us a nice little voicemail. Maybe we won't even play it if you just get a little too crazy. I don't know. But who But who, who do we got this week? Did somebody call in? So um, I don't have another voicemail right now that I want to play, but I do have a question on Patreon that I thought would be fun to talk about. Um, <laughs> Good save, Tom. You guys will get a voicemail soon. Don't worry. Jacob Schultz, uh, who has been a Patreon basically forever. Frequent supporter. Yes. Uh, you guys got any idea who played bass at that anal birth set? <laughs> uh, that was a guy named Brainless Bill. Oh. Yeah. Uh, session noise musician Brainless Bill um, on the scene now, apparently in the gore noise scene. I don't know much about this man. Um, they, people, people want to lump us in because we both have a nice head of hair. I've, I've heard, I've heard it was me. It was not me performing live session bass for anal birth there at the barely breathing fest last week. And I was able to watch it via Skype. I had sources in the audience. Um, I think they did a great job, Adam and, uh, this brainless bill character, um, whether he's human clone cyborg remains to be seen. Maybe leftover junk from a band he got kicked out of. Who knows? But Adam has managed to uh, recycle these parts into a live session member. We'll see. We'll see what happens next from the Gore Noise realm of Adam Rotella. Funny story about that that came up on my uh, YouTube algorithm mm. as I was browsing through my phone. Yeah, and I clicked it and I couldn't hear anything. And uh, like some people relay a story of pornography in. Uh, Bluetooth played at the wrong time around families. Oh, no. Um, I had lent my Yui boom to construction workers who are working at my in-laws place. So uh, these guys were installing a bathroom, listening to bachata, and all of a sudden they got to hear some uh, anal birth. <laughs> <laughs> they thought some. They thought somebody was fucking around with the drill or the fucking uh, uh, jackhammer real quick. We can only hope so. Yeah. Jeez. Wow. Poor guys. Maybe they. Maybe we. Maybe they went over a fan. Maybe, Maybe. A new anal birth fan. Um, yeah. I. So that. That's the best I could do with that, man. Um, uh, but you know, we appreciate people paying attention to what Adam's doing with his legacy out there. Shout out to Adam Rotella. I, he sold some tapes that day too. Did he? Yeah, there was a lot of people at that show, man. I yeah. did. Yeah, the video uh, looked. It looked fun. I, I wish I went. There was a lot of people out there for a gore noise fest in Long Island, New York. Yeah, that was pretty wild. De Decibel magazine covered it. Really? Yeah, to Tom. I feel like you would appreciate this. They, it, the coverage was basically like three or four sentences about how much the writer like was begrudgingly writing about a Long Island show. They just hate <laughs> Long Island, so they're like, yeah, that's me. They're, they're yeah, they're they're like the the uh, the opposite. Of, well, you would be able to see through it for what it is too, man. It's just like someone who just did not want to acknowledge anything happening on Long Island at all, and then just listed the ba the bands and what time to show up. Right. But it, we appreciated right. Decibel. We know it was hard. We know we know you didn't want to do it, but you did it. It's no Brooklyn, but yeah, I know it wasn't. Yeah, but uh, we yeah we we support St. Vitus and all of our friends out there in New York City, man. Come out to Long Island. We'll show you a good time at the Gore Noise Festival. Yeah, get, why not? Maybe you can get parking. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Oh, Mister Beery's, there's nothing but parking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, I actually, man. haven't been to Mister. I've never seen a show, Mister Beery's. It's worth it. Yeah, it's worth it. I drank there, but it was always an off hour. Uh, yeah, I've been in those shoes too. Mr. Yeah. Barry's a funny place, but yeah, they have a lot of shows. Yeah, uh, Raid just played there from Elmont, upcoming band. Nice. Pay attention; you might hear more about them. Um, 
I don't know, man. I think we're winding down. Yeah, I have no more to add to that conversation. Shout out to the Barely Breathing Fest. Hope to see much more from Chico Baby Records. Uh, Bowel Erosion, Ranger, and all of his wonderful projects. And, of course, John Santiago. We'll get them back on the on the podcast eventually. Uh, tonight's guest, Adrian Camoens, uh, Dreams of Consciousness podcast. And much more, really. You go on his website and you check out what he's got going on. He's got a long history uh, coverage in the scene. And we appreciate him sharing his story very candidly tonight. Um, really different perspective and, and, uh, different history coming into the metal scene, man. So we enjoyed that. And if you want more of my, um, basic, uh, Long Island guy perspective on, on things, you can always go to heavy hole podcast on Patreon. We got some bonus episodes we're working on. Uh, we got all the social medias you want to ask for and, um, none of the ones you don't, and we'll just leave it at that. Uh, and, um, that's about it. Shout out to Justin, shout out to Dave Gladding. Thank you to Tyler Craig for phoning in, uh, our doom metal correspondent, Rick Habib on vacation with the feed up too. Apparently I heard, uh, and, um, Tone Baldone. Our ski wear correspondent in the Poconos yeah. on the off season now. Good luck with the clearance sale. It's never a, a full picture without tone. It's like tone always says: the loneliest number you ever want to do is one. Mm-hmm.